are the roids of summer. <laughs> Let's rock. Thanks, Dad. Can I get a open? No Man Presents, live from the Nudie Bar, the Married with Children Podcast. Welcome back to the Married with Children Podcast. You know, the last time we had a meeting, we bitched about you know, the baseball shortened season, drank beer, peed, drank more beer, peed again, then hurried home to drink beer and pee. <laughs> Chris here, and some of our viewers may have missed that because we're shooting an episode of Baywatch now, apparently. Hey, that's a good show. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Luigi. I've got an ex-wife, and I work in a shoe store. I feel no pain. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. We are doing Season 9, Episode 11, which aired on November 27th, 1994. It was written by Kim Weisskopf and Michael Moyer and directed by Amanda Burse. And we have quite a list of uh, guests today, mainly baseball players. As we all know, Major League Baseball was on strike. So here's just a few of our um, guests today. We have Mike Piazza. Brett Saberhagen, Danny Tartable, Frank Thomas, also known as the Big Hurt, Dave Winfield, Joe Morgan, the legend, and we have E.E. Bell, who we all know as Bob Rooney, Dan Tullis as Officer Dan, Tom McClyster, who I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is his first appearance as Ike. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so this is his first appearance, so that's exciting. So we have our full um, group of Nomad members now. We also have uh, Sean Tube as Akbar. And then we have Harold Sylvester as Griff, who we all know and love by now. So quite a cast for this episode. Really looking forward to it. Sunday. If the baseball players don't want to play, I say the hell with them. We'll play with ourselves. Al Bundy starting a league of his own. Guess what you're looking at? The Sultan of Sweat. But is he ready to take on the Major League's greatest players? Absolutely. It's Baseball Bundy style on an all-star Married with Children Sunday. Yeah, and the title of this one is called A Man for No Seasons. Uh, Luigi, tell us about that title. Okay, so the title of this episode is a pun on the expression, A Man for All Seasons. There was a book by Maury Allen who used this expression to refer to Yankee great Roger Maris, and it was published in 1986. The expression originally came from a 1954 play by Robert Bolt based on the life of Sir Thomas More, and it became a film in 1966. And this particular episode revolves around the 1994-95 Major League Baseball strike. It was the eighth work stoppage in baseball history as well as a fourth in-season work stoppage in 22 years. This began on August 12, 1994, a day that will live in infamy, and resulted in the remainder of that season being canceled, including the postseason and that included the World Series, the first time since 1904. The strike was suspended on April 2, 1995, after 232 days. It was the longest work stoppage in MLB history. 
and the longest work stoppage in any major professional sport at the time. It broke the uh, previous record set in 1981. Its length would also be surpassed by the 2004-05 NHL lockout. That ran for 310 days, but nobody cared. (laughs) 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 It caused the cancellation of that league's entire 2004-05 season. 948 games were canceled in all, and Major League Baseball became the first major professional sports league to lose an entire postseason due to labor struggles. Due to that, both the 94 and 95 seasons were not played to a complete 162 games. The strike was called after most teams had played at least 113 games in 94. Something interesting about it is that it really wasn't about money. It was about power. Who was going to control baseball? Yeah, and actually, you know, Stephen, you're our resident uh, sports guy. So with this, in this age of COVID, we've had a stoppage based on, you know, the pandemic. So, I mean, it hasn't surpassed the baseball strike, right? But we really had probably the first uh, shortened season since the 94 strike this past year, correct? That's right. Yes. First shortened season since 95, actually. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I think that players and, you know, just talking about the power struggle and the money struggle and things like that, people that are making hundreds of millions of dollars are never going to be, I guess you could say understood or by the general public, you know, the general public is never going to feel sympathy for an athlete making a hundred million dollars or an owner, you know, has who has a net worth of four or $5 billion. But the little, you know, argument or feud that Al has towards the end of the episode with uh, Akbar there kind of makes you realize where both sides are coming from. You know, the, the owners are the ones who take the risk, so to speak, financially, you know, if the league fails or if the business fails, they lose everything. So they deserve money, obviously. However, the players are the ones who are actually putting their bodies on the line and putting everything out on the line and, and drawing in the fans. You know, the fans don't come fill up stadiums to watch owners play, <laughs> so to speak. So it's like you, you see a little bit of the power struggle. And, you know, it's very brief. I think the little back and forth by Al and Akbar is like 20 seconds. But that kind of gives you a... In a microcosm, you know, the kind of the both sides of the picture, I think. I'm I'm glad they put that in there. And top of that, it's also that, uh, you know, when you were mentioning that, it kind of reminded me also that uh, the owners did lose a lot of money this last year. Oh, absolutely. And the players, they wanted to have their full salaries. And that was the big dispute on having a shortened season last year because – the owners wanted to prorate their uh, salaries, which I thought was fair because you can't have fans come in. You're not going to make money that way. And, you know, when you talk about strikes, like for Major League Baseball, going back to 94, that also affected a lot of the merchants in there that were selling T-shirts or, right. or Cracker Jack, popcorn, all that stuff. And that's where I have a little problem with some um, labor disputes like that. That's just me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Those are the kind of the forgotten people that, you know, you know, I, I get both sides of the argument, the owner and the player. But at the end of the day, you know, like I was saying, it's hard for someone like, you know, regular people like us to feel sorry for someone who, well, I guess at the time was probably making five, six, seven, eight million dollars a year. You know, now it's, you know, 20, 30 million dollars a year for the biggest contracts. But the people at the bottom, you know, I guess back in 1994, if you're selling 
Cracker Jacks at a stadium, you're probably making no more than six or seven, eight dollars an hour. You know, <laughs> those are the very likely. Th- those are the people I feel sorry for because for them to go almost a year without a paycheck, obviously, is not easy. You know, they well, they have to go get another job is what happens. But those are the people I feel sorry for. And you experienced that this last year with the pandemic. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, I think well, a lot of us did, but I, uh, you know, I got furloughed, uh, at the airline and, you know, I got, got creative, um, in different ways to make money. Yeah. I probably won't talk too much on that here cause it could derail the whole, uh, <laughs> derail the whole podcast, but I did some clinical trials and made some money and kept afloat that way. So it worked out pretty well. Now, you know, one thing I want to point out about this, uh, you know, the current world we live in is that uh, I've been getting emails. So by default, I'm a New York Mets fan. I know that uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to say it, but uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's where my loyalties lie when it comes to baseball. And it's actually the one sport that I can follow and I do enjoy from time to time. But, you know, the Mets make it very unenjoyable. Uh, you know, I, I was at a game, I'm going to say like two years ago, like I bought tickets online. I think it was probably like the one, maybe one of two games I saw in the stadium. And I've been getting emails like every other day from them saying, hey, you know, we know that you're a fan. You know, would you like to get some tickets for this coming season, you know, as a result of the pandemic? So, you know, we also have to remember, like, I think for both the players and the owners, at the end of the day, it's the fans who bring the revenue in. Yeah. So um, and the one thing I'll say about this episode, I guess, before we get into it, is that you know, this episode is very much a time capsule about what was happening. I think it's actually somewhat relevant in 2021, but this is one of those episodes of Married with Children where uh, it's very much out of time. Like, in other words, watching it in the present day, you really don't understand it as much as if you were watching it in its first run in 1994. Because at that point, you know, everyone was pissed off that baseball was on strike and hockey was on strike. So I think like when in a few years time, let's say when the pandemic is over, people are going to forget about sort of what we've went through in both 1994 and in 2020. So this is one of those episodes that, again, gets lost because it's dated. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there are several episodes that do that, but this is one that's just really, you know, spot on dated. Hey, you know, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, I actually had this in my notes when I was going over the cast list, but, uh, and Stephen, maybe you can uh, shed some light on this as a big baseball fan, but maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm a little bit biased as a uh, Astros fan, but I'm kind of surprised, looking back and reflecting now, I'm kind of surprised that Jeff Bagwell wasn't in this episode, because he was actually the regular season MVP in 1994. (laughs) So, you know, I'm just thinking about the big names in baseball at the time. Obviously, you have Mike Piazza and uh, Frank Thomas, the big hurt. I mean, those are probably the two biggest. But Jeff Bagwell actually won MVP that year. I've forgotten about that. But, you know, it was probably just like they only had so much money to spend on athletes and they got what they could. And right. Maybe Bagwell's agent wanted more money. Who knows? Yeah. I was actually thinking, you know, I, it's ironic that, that, well, he won MVP, but he probably wasn't as big of a name as a Frank Thomas or a Mike Piazza. So like I, I would I would actually think he might have actually asked for less money I don't know but they might have just th- they were probably thinking hey Frank Thomas and Ma- Mike Piazza are bigger names 
you know, nationally than Jeff Bagwell is. But <laughs> it's kind of funny. As I was watching that today, for the first time, I really thought about it. I was like, hey, how come Bagwell wasn't in this? So in 1994, in addition to the baseball strike, we also had a hockey strike. So the 1994 to 1995 NHL lockout was a lockout that came after a year that hockey was played without a collective bargaining agreement. The lockout was a subject of dispute as the players sought collective bargaining and owners sought to help franchises that had a weaker market, as well as make sure that they could cap the rising salaries of players. The lockout caused the 1994 to 1995 season to be shortened to 48 games instead of 84, the shortest season in 53 years. You know, there's something uh, you got to bring up about this because uh, Chris was mentioning about players' salaries. It's hard for us to identify with and the collective bargaining that went on. Up until about the early 1970s, the average baseball star made about eight times the um, about eight times the uh, income of, the, of a high-paid worker, like a blue-collar worker, eight times greater. Ever since the early 1970s and the beginning of collective bargaining and free agency, that's when salaries really started to spike in all major sports because the other sports followed. A, a case was brought up when Kurt Flood of the St. Louis Cardinals was going to be traded. He didn't want to be traded. He thought slavery ended 100 years ago because he was black. <laughs> and so he took a case all the way to the Supreme Court. And they ruled that the players, con it wasn't the players that the owners owned, it was the contracts. But that led to something called free agency. That and the collective bargaining led to these skyrocketing players' salaries. And the owners were, have been trying to contain those salaries, especially since, well, some markets do better than others. You know, like you live in New York, for example, Luigi, and you got two major league teams there. And that's a lot of competition. But the Yankees typically pull in a lot more than the Mets, I would imagine. Yep, absolutely. And then you have smaller markets like uh, Kansas City. They don't pull it in. Well, they don't have revenue sharing like the NFL does. The NFL, you know, it's dispersed equally among the teams is how they do it. And that's why there are salary caps there. I believe the NBA has revenue sharing too, because I've read that about how, you know, of course you have the Lakers, well, you know, way, well before LeBron James ever went to the Lakers, the, the Lakers and the Knicks, teams like that, uh, obviously rake in cash hand over fist. Uh, you know, the Golden State Warriors, when they had their great run, they were raking in cash hand over fist. And But then you have teams like the Milwaukee Bucks and, you know, the Oklahoma City Thunder and and heck even the Clippers uh, for a long time even though they were in the same city as the Lakers uh, the Clippers themselves were losing money <laughs> even though they were in Los Angeles but you know the Lakers and the Knicks and the the Warriors when they had their great run and of course the Bulls back in the day those teams rake in money hand over fist and it balances out the league which I personally think is a good idea uh, because we, without without you know the Bucks and the Clippers and the the Atlanta Hawks and and different teams like that. You, you can't have a league. I mean, you can't you can't have a league made up of eight teams. <laughs> you, you need you need those yeah. thirty uh, teams in order to in order to make the bracket and make the playoffs and 
you know, it, it works out well because sometimes one of those smaller teams ends up winning the NBA title or the, you know, the Super Bowl. <laughs> so it balances out, you know. And, and everybody makes money at the end of the day. It does. You see, and what I was saying was Major League Baseball is the only sport that doesn't have revenue sharing like that. And that's why their salaries are a lot more, what can I say, ballooning than other sports. So. And uh, Stephen, actually talking about player salaries, I have a quick story for you. Uh, my economics teacher in high school was a professional ball player. Uh, he was a pitcher for the Dodgers, for the LA Dodgers, in the early 1960s. Uh, he, so my high school actually, we're, I think we're the only high school in the United States that has both a World Series winning manager and a Super Bowl winning coach. So that's Joe Torre for the Yankees and yeah. Vince Lombardi for the Green Bay Packers. Uh, and my economics teacher's name was Paul Speckenbach. He was, uh, he knew, he knew Tory. I believe Tory was a junior or senior when he was a freshman, you know, just about that time. I think Tory graduated, I'm going to say in 1958 and uh, Speckenbach, I think was maybe a little after 62 or 63. So when he graduated high school, he was signed with the Dodgers, and they paid him $100,000. So imagine this is the early 1960s. So $100,000 is like probably, I'm going to say, well over a million bucks today. And uh, he got injured in his rookie season, so there is a baseball card out of him. But what he ended up doing was he invested it in real estate. So uh, he had a bunch of investment properties, and he worked for CBS for a while, and then he just sort of got a job uh, as a high school teacher and coached both high school and college baseball more as a hobby. Like, you know, he used to, I think in my economics classes, I spent more time learning about baseball than I did about economics, but he had some really relevant stories and just sort of told us, it's like, you know, a lot of people would get money and blow it, but he really tried to uh, invest it so that he was really taken care of. It's like, you know, like his healthcare was taken care of and it like, he saw his job as more of like a, as a hobby than like something that he needed to earn income. And sadly he passed away. I'm going to say maybe like in the last decade, 10, maybe last 10 years. Very nice man though. Anyway, this show starts out with the meeting of no man. I now call to order this meeting of no man. National Organization of Men Against Amazonian Masterhood. <laughs> Brother Jefferson will read the minutes of our last meeting. <clears throat> 801. 802. 803. <laughs> the same damn joke every week. Hey, every time Bob Rooney plays the armpit tuba, you all laugh. Well, that's funny. <laughs> Let it rip, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, last meeting we bitched about the baseball strike, drank beer, peed, drank more beer, peed again, then hurried home to drink beer and pee. Thank you, Brother Jefferson. So, Stephen, you know. One of the things I was thinking of when I was watching this episode today is, you know, I'm a big fan of the Honeymooners. And one of the things we've never talked about is like, No Ma'am is really like, 
sort of the modern day, or at least for 1994, version of the Raccoon Lodge. I never thought about that. <laughs> Ralph and Ed Norton, you know, sort of, you remember there was this one episode where uh, they're having uh, uh, they're having a stag party for uh, this guy who's going to be uh, Ralph's uh, brother-in-law? Okay. Do you remember? So what happens is, like, they're sort of talking him out, like, telling him, like, all the bad things about marriage. They're toasting him. And then it's like... Uh, at, right after the we, right after he gets married, uh, the uh, the guy like he sort of uh, turns into this beast, and Al, and it's, and he's marrying Alice's sister, and like she's like, I never want to see him again. He's a beast. He's a beast. <laughs> I I hadn't thought about that one in ages, but <laughs> yeah, I always kind of think of him as the water buffaloes in the Flintstones. <laughs> right, that's right. And the other thing we did mention before was that Tom McClester, this is his first appearance as Ike. And, you know, I think I, I said before, like, his character is like one of the most awkward characters. He probably has one of the most awkward lines uh, written for him as part of No Man. I think, like, Bob Rooney is written more as, I guess, as a buffoon, whereas Ike is like this weird, like, like sexual, uh, I'm not going to say freak, but he's just like a different just a weird, awkward guy. I mean, if you think about it, every 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 group has like the athletic guy. You know, it has the jock in it. Has, every group has the smart, the really smart guy. Every guy, every group, ha- and every group has like the awkward weirdo, whatever. <laughs> I think Ike is just the weird guy of the group. <laughs> I think they're all weird to a certain extent. Well, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> He's big, like, you know, with Ike, you get a lot of masturbation jokes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, throughout the, throughout the run. Now, the one thing I want to point out about it is there was a character in the Ironhead Haynes episode. His name was Roger. And he was the one who would insult Al. And that actor actually died. He had, like, a heart attack a few months after, the, after that Ironhead Haynes uh, episode aired in season eight. So he was replaced and, you know, Ike was effectively his replacement. Although there's this one character who has some dialogue. His name is Pat Milicano, and I believe he's the one who plays Sticky. He's the guy who's got the mullet. He's got the mustache, you know, with the, like, bald on top, you know, and busy in the back. <laughs> and he has a couple of lines of dialogue during this. Uh, and it looks, he almost looked a little bit like that Roger character, except that he had a mustache, but... Uh, this seems to be like how we transition to Ike. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good to see him. Now we know we have our full cast of no mammers. I didn't know about the death there. That's kind of shocking. But... Yeah. Like, I mean, cause like Roger was very antagonistic. He had antagonistic lines toward Al, like he was insulting Peggy. Uh-huh. So we sort of got rid of, you know, like that aspect of, of a no ma'am character uh, we don't see anymore. And like I said, Ike ended up being <laughs> having like these zingers. Although like one of my favorite lines comes later. Uh, I think my favorite Ike line is when this is the Reverend Al episode. He comes in. He's like, <laughs> it's like I went to the judge and I found out that I am married to Fanny. <laughs> you know, it's like he was. He was <laughs> it's like he was married by like this preacher like in a hot tub. Reverend <laughs> flashback. I think that's how it went. <laughs> I thought that was the best Ike joke of the whole series. But uh, we'll get to that when we get to it. Thank you, Brother Jefferson. Now on to new business. As you know, a new member, our very own Griff, is being initiated. So, Sergeant at Arms Ike, would you bring the plebe in? (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, Griff, you've survived the other initiation rites, the purchasing of panty shields in broad daylight, <laughs> the attending a Julio concert in wig and matching ensemble. Are you ready for the third and final challenge? Hey, I've got an ex-wife and I work in a shoe store. I feel no pain. <laughs> then Sergeant at Arms Ike, please escort Griff to the bathroom. Excuse me? I mean the Chamber of the Damned, please. Hey, Al, are you sure we should put Griff through this? Yeah, the human mind is only made of flesh and bone. Hey. No, ma'am, isn't like California, you can't just walk in. Our standards have to be tough. And if a man can't stand a two-hour videotape of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, he's not strong enough to be a nomad. Yeah, so if you notice, Gr Griff has the shirt that says man in training. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> hey, I just want to go back to one joke. So when um, Al says he's going to put Griff in the bathroom... He calls it the Chamber of the Damned. Now, just before the, uh, just before uh, Griff goes in there, Bob Rooney comes out of that in the opening shot. So I wonder <laughs> what the hell that bathroom smelled like. <laughs> you know, we're wearing masks right now, and at, at work, I work part time at a driving school. And I came out of the bathroom one time, and I said, "Keep your mask on when you go in there." <laughs> <laughs> I like, then Al talks about how our standards have to be tough. If a man can't stand a two-hour videotape of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, he's not strong enough to be a no-man. And that leads <laughs> us to some very important information. Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. So Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman is an American Western drama television series created and produced by Beth Sullivan and starring Jane Seymour, who plays Dr. Michaela Mike Quinn a physician who leaves Boston in search of adventure in the old American West and who settles in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The television series ran on CBS for six seasons from January 1st, 1993 to May 16th, 1998. I got a funny story about that show. <laughs> Back in 1994, strangely, I was going to seminary in Kentucky, Wilmore, Kentucky, little small town. And that was a brutal winter. I think this winter finally dethroned that one. And we power kept going out, you know, intermittently. And my friend Bill, he had this little TV. It's one of those that you can hold in your hands, you know, about the size of a large iPhone. And we were all pissed. We wanted to watch the commish. It was a Saturday night. And... Uh, I'm like sitting right to the left of Bill behind him. He's sitting on, on the chair. Someone is sitting on his right looking over. We were kind of pyramiding out and back in so we could all watch this show on a little TV. Well, the funny thing is, one of the other uh, seminarians we knew, his name was Vaughn. He was married. He came from over from the married dorms. And he was like, oh, the power's out here too. And he says, hey, a television. I can use this. Can I borrow it? And we were all like, leave us alone. We are watching the commish. And he said, but Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman is on. <laughs> and we said, no, we're watching the commish. And he, 
and he pouts and he says, I want you to know I'm not getting any nookie from my wife tonight and it's all your guys' fault. (laughs) (laughs) That was uh, with Mike Chiklis, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, it was a good show. Uh, There was also a reference to Julio Iglesias. Yeah, uh, so Julio Iglesias was born September 23rd, 1943. He's a Spanish singer, songwriter, and former professional soccer player. Iglesias is recognized as the most commercially successful continental European singer in the world and one of the top ten record sellers in music history, sold, uh, by, by virtue of selling more than 300 million records worldwide in 14 different languages. It is estimated that during his career he has performed more than 5,000 concerts for over 60 million people in five continents. In April 2013, Iglesias was inducted in the Hall of Fame of Latin Composers. Iglesias made a cameo appearance as himself on The Golden Girls as Sofia Petrillo's date on the St. Valentine's Day episode 1989. In 1993, he recorded Summer Wind with Frank Sinatra, which was included in his successful album, duets. In 1994, he released his album Crazy, which included duets with Dolly Parton, Sting, and Art Garfunkel. So, heck of a list of uh, heck of a list of names there he's performed with when you're talking about people like Sting, Dolly Parton, Frank Sinatra, appearances on The Golden Girls, and he sold over 300 million records worldwide. That's a uh, that's a hell of a resume. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. I'm not super familiar with his work. I'm not either, but I mean, just just seeing the names he's performed with and 300 million records sold worldwide—that's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm actually very familiar with him. My, my he's actually my my dad likes uh, his music, so I've listened to numerous cassette tapes through the years of uh, his music. He's very popular in Europe and South America. He sings in multiple languages. Like he'll sing. Uh, you know, he's from Spain, but he'll sing in Italian, in German, in French. So that's part of his appeal. That's a hell of a talent in itself right there. Just, you know, <laughs> I mean, speaking multiple languages, but let alone singing in them and, and making it sound well, you know. Now on to new business, men. We have got to do something about this baseball strike. Amen. It's affecting the way we live. Yeah. I had to take my wife to the beauty parlor. Oh. I had to take my wife to the opera. I had to take my wife! (laughs) Make the Indians kill her, please! Make the Indians kill her! (laughs) Now, if the players don't want to play, I don't give a damn, we don't need them. We can play with ourselves. So the meeting is dismissed? <laughs> I go in there with Griff. <laughs> so we're going to play baseball. We are. Where? How about Wrigley Field? Yeah. <laughs> the Cubs ain't using it. <laughs> oh, they weren't using it before the strike. <laughs> use Wrigley. It's private property. Oh, come on. Who's going to stop a bunch of great American guys 
from playing the great American pastime. No, ma'am, is about to finish up their meeting, and they want to talk about that baseball strike. They want to go play baseball. And one of them suggests Wrigley Field. And you got to talk about Wrigley Field simply because it is in Chicago where Al Bundy resides. And there's a lot of good history into Wrigley Field. It's the Cubs' home field, but it actually started out as Wigan Park in 1914. It was originally home to the Chicago Whales of the Federal League, but they fold in 1915. The Cubs made it their home park in 1916. And then chewing gum magnate William Wrigley Jr. acquired the team and renamed the park Cubs Stadiums. It was named Wrigley Field. It is the second oldest ballpark in the Major League Baseball, next to Fenway Park in Boston. It is known for ivy on the outfield walls, as well as unusual winds off of Lake Michigan. And the really interesting thing is they were the last stadium to get lights installed for night games. That did not happen until 1988. So, the, And let me tell you, I have been to probably about 12 to 16 ballparks throughout the United States. Even though I'm a Cardinals fan to the end, Wrigley Field, if you've seen a game at Wrigley Field, you know you have um, seen one of the best ballparks ever. Of course, I almost got beat up by a couple of drunken Cubs fans, but uh, <laughs> it's still very enjoyable there. The Cubs World won World Back-to-Back -back World Series in 07 and 1908, and then they didn't win it again until 2016, just a few years ago. And I admit it, as a Cardinals fan, I thought they made it to the series and it's unheard of for a Cardinals fan to say that they rooted for the Cubs, but I rooted for the Cubs in the 2016 series, and I was thrilled to see him win it. <laughs> you know, I was hoping that they were going to win in 2015 to, uh, you know, uh, do that Back to the Future prediction, like in other words, to fulfill that. <laughs> but uh, it, it didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was I was rooting for him too. I was rooting for him too. Hey, you know that's interesting. I would that blows my mind that they didn't have the uh, lights installed until 1988. That's that's really something. I remember I, when I, that happened. I, I, yeah, yeah, I remember that too. I remember that was really big news for like you know, a while. I uh, I wanna I wanna go watch a game there. I'll have to wear uh, have to wear some Astros gear there. We all know the Astros are loved across the country, so. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll have to wear some Astros gear there. I'll give you the signal as to when to wear them, okay? <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who understood that. You know, and a little bit of uh, trivia for you. I, th I actually mentioned this uh, on last season with uh, Tyler in the episode, The Darcy Files, that the very first uh, baseball team to use lights was in the Negro Leagues. And that was in uh, the Kansas City Monarch. Huh. Yeah. I, I, remember, I remember you mentioning that. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of people realize how much the Negro Leagues impacted Major League Baseball. Huge impact. <laughs> well, I mean, except for the police. <laughs> Well, at least it was great to hear the crack of the bat again. That was a nightstick. <laughs> but you know, it was good to get outside and play a little baseball. We pitched well, we hit well. And man, Jefferson, I didn't realize you could run so fast. 
Well, you run faster with a police dog in your back pocket. <laughs> well, well, well. Hey, Officer Dan, what are you doing here? Same thing you do at the shoe store, Al. Waiting for quitting time. Exactly. <laughs> and it's ribs night. Oh. So, here you were busted climbing the vines at Wrigley Field. We miss baseball. I miss good sex. You don't see me climbing my wife. <laughs> then the episode moves on, and they finally get out of uh, the meeting. And then the next thing you know, they are in jail. And that's when Officer Dan has to come in. <laughs> I just got to say, I, I, always, I love uh, Officer Dan's character <laughs> for many reasons. Uh, one of the things I always find funniest about him is, you know, he's friends with Al. He's friends with the guys, but he's always arresting them. <laughs> can you can you imagine if one of your best friends was a cop and he had arrested you? Like, well, I, I guess at some point there on an episode, there's there's an there's a joke about the number of times he's arrested Al. <laughs> like, can you imagine if your best friend had arrested you dozens of times? <laughs> I'm glad to say one of my best friends is a cop here in Tulsa, or he's retired now. And I always called him to ask him, how do I get out of this ticket? Well, I was just about to say, can you imagine if he had arrested you like a dozen times, though? Yeah. <laughs> Y'all probably wouldn't be friends anymore. <laughs> yeah, but then again, I was a paramedic at the time. I, you know, and I had to respond to when police were injured. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. And actually, Chris, you know, it's a great point that you bring up, and I had some notes on this. So... This is actually the last time that Officer Dan arrests Al. Ah, interesting. So, you know, in in um, in the uh, Legend of Ironhead Haynes episode, Dan is part of No Man. Right. And, like, he goes up to the mountain with Al. But, like, when we cut to this scene, he's really not part of that No Man crew. True. In the next, ep- in the next uh, two episodes, when we have the two-parter, you know, I want my psycho dad, that is when Officer Dan is definitely a member of no ma'am and he no longer arrests al or any of his friends yeah so that is like a big turning point but this is i think the last time that they get uh, arrested by him okay and uh of course then peg and marcy have to show up to bail them out anyhow i came to tell you you've been sprung what by who i am so sick of coming down <laughs> the wives They are the roids of summer. No conjugal visits! Jefferson Darcy, now I expect Al to be involved in some receding harebrained scheme like this. But what are you in for? I, uh... I I was uh, I, I was on my way to a uh, job, interview. A job interview when when suddenly I was kidnapped ki- kidnapped <laughs> by a gang of chickens uh, chickens. <laughs> yeah. But real chickens, not you. <laughs> you know, Al, I thought about letting you spend the night in jail. Well, thank you. You know, it's ribs night. 
Not tonight. We have tickets for the theater. That's right. Tonight it's Ace Ventura, the musical. <laughs> Starring Nell Carter, Joyce DeWitt, and that guy that played Horshack. He's Ace. <laughs> I confess to killing a bunch of people and, uh, and, uh, and eating them. <laughs> then you've already had your ribs. <laughs> And Peg says, I am so sick of coming down here. <laughs> I wonder how many times she's gone down there. <laughs> and then she makes reference to, there they are, the roids of summer. <laughs> so the roids of summer is a pun on the boys of summer. So the boys of summer is a very famous 1972 nonfiction baseball book by Roger Kahn. The title of the book is taken from a Dylan Thomas poem that describes the boys of summer in their ruin. After recounting his childhood in Brooklyn and his life as a young reporter on the New York Herald Tribune, the author relates some history of the Brooklyn Dodgers up to their victory in the 1955 World Series. Roger Kahn died on February 6, 2020, at the age of 92. Kahn! Wait, wrong franchise. Wrong franchise. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, another thing I want to point out is uh, I had I work with a guy uh, by the name of Bob McGee. Uh, this is not the Bob McGee of Janis Joplin fame. And he wrote a book called The Greatest Ballpark Ever, which is actually a history of Ebbets Field, which is where the Brooklyn Dodgers played. So if any of you we have any baseball fans out there, you should check that out. It's a great book. Came out, I'm going to say around 2005-ish. Oh, boy. And then, uh, oh, God, there was a line in there when Marcy says, now I expect Al to be involved in some receding harebrained scheme like this, but what are you in for? And, <laughs> Luigi, I don't know about you, but I think Dan Chase as well. We should take offense at this. Uh, and Chris and Matt. Oh, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah some, I think Alex, well, Alex is the only get one of the few guys we've had that has a full head of hair. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the original crew of the podcast, which was JP and Jerry, I mean, you had a whole bunch of yeah, that's guys. True. That's and true. after that, it's like, it's almost like Alex took like all the hair genes and like kept them for himself. And he just got a whole bunch of bald guys to do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, during a live feed, I once commented that he looked like Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think I remember that. I think I was on that live when you said that. <laughs> no, well, he's he's up Milo Ventimiglia. That's that's uh, who he looks like to me. Okay, well, if you say so, I have no idea who that is. He was uh, he played uh, Rocky's son, like one of the later Rocky movies. Okay, uh, and he's the guy. You know, you know who he is. He's the the dad in This Is Us. Okay, you might say Milo Ventimiglia or. Uh, I think in Italian it's Ventimiglia, which means 20,000. Well, um, I liked Jefferson's comeback from there. He said that he was kidnapped by a gang of chickens. Uh, real <laughs> real chickens, though, not Marcy. <laughs> that, that's right. I just related. He said chickens, and I automatically think Marcy. Right. He's like, and it's like, you know, at this point in the series, the, jo the jokes are predictable, but they're still funny, you know. Like, you could almost tell that the, the audience started laughing. They knew exactly what was coming. He goes, abducted by a gang of chickens. And he goes, 
Real chickens, though, not you. <laughs> they were already laughing when he said that. <laughs> and let's not forget it's ribs night at jail. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I cannot eat ribs. <laughs> I can't. I had my ribs broken like in the eighth grade in the football game. And let me tell you, there's nothing you can do for broken ribs. It's miserable. You can't even laugh and it still hurts. Ugh. But then when Marcy comes in, she makes a reference and says, That's right. Tonight it's Ace Ventura, the musical starring Mel Carter and Joyce DeWitt. And that guy who played Horseshack, he's Ace. <laughs> now that was funny yeah so ace ventura pet detective is starring one of my favorite actors is a 1994 comedy film starring jim carrey as ace ventura an animal detective who is tasked with finding the abducted dolphin mascot of the miami dolphins football team the film was directed by Tom Shadyak, who wrote the screenplay with Jack Bernstein and Jim Carrey. The film co-stars Courtney Cox, Tony Lose, Sean Tone Lock, to- isn't it? Tony Locke. Is that is that Tony? Tone. Is, is that is Tone that, is that, is that Tone Loke, the singer, the Wild Thing guy? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure. I couldn't remember. Yeah, Wild Thing and uh, Funky Cold Medina, right? And Sean Young and former Miami Dolphins quarterback. Dan Marino, and features a cameo appearance from the death metal band Cannibal Corpse. Never saw it. You've never seen Ace Ventura, Pet Detective? Really? No. Uh-uh. Oh, man. Well, I mean, first of all, I guess I should ask, do you like Jim Carrey? Because I know people either love him or hate him. Okay. <laughs> I do like, I like some of his stuff, but that was the era I didn't care for. Okay. The first one I liked with him was Dumb and Dumber, obviously. Okay. And I really... And I really liked the mask. I thought the mask. Oh, okay, was okay. The bomb. Well, I I was at because some people like I love Jim Carrey. Some people just think he's stupid. You know, I know some people don't like him, but I like him. You should. So there's Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, and then there's When Nature Calls, which the sequel. So you should check both of them out. I'll consider it. <laughs> nah, I, I I can't say I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah, I mean he he's the type of actor I, I think. People either love him or hate him. I love him. Uh, he also does dramatic roles too. One of my all-time favorite films is called The Truman Show, and it's that's good. I like that one. That's yeah, one of his I, do, I, like. I did like that. Yeah. One, yeah, and The Truman Show is definitely not a comedy. So if you, if you, if anyone out there listening that's never seen it, I would definitely watch it. It's a very good film. Now you know I like Jim Carrey in In Living Color. I feel like you know his early stuff was good, but when he went off on his own, like. He, like he and Will Farrell are like these two comedians that to me it's like they try to be funny in your face, but it's not like a, what I call like a sophisticated humor, right? Like, you know, like I feel like, you know, to be a good comedian, you need to be able to do deadpan very well. And like that's not what they do. And again, that's really like what I don't like about their style of comedy. It's very much like in your face. It's like screaming in your face, you know, too, as opposed to too wild, you know, too crazy for you. Yeah. Yeah, no, like I, I feel like, you know, I, I, like to me, and Stephen, you've talked about this a lot. It's about dialogue. I mean, to me, yeah. like, you know, good comedy is when you have really f- like biting dialogue, double entendre, right? Like, in other words, the, the listener has to think about what's being said. Like that to me is, that is the type of humor that I like. Right. And like I, and I, like I said, I just don't like that style that, that they do. Have you ever seen uh, Liar Liar before? 
No, that one I love. That that's really my of, that of his of his comedies. That's my favorite comedy of his, and I think that one has amazing dialogue. Uh, I'm sure you've probably heard of it. Basically, he can't tell a lie for is it 24 yeah. hours mm-hmm. or 48 hours? I can't remember what for a period of time. Yeah, 25 hours. He can't tell a lie, and. <laughs> <laughs> and of course it's wild and crazy because it's Jim Carrey, but the dialogue is amazing in it. <laughs> Should definitely. Oh yeah, I would agree. And there was one other one I really liked with him called Man in the Moon when he played Andy yeah. Kopp. Yes, yeah, that was, that a good was one. excellent. That, was, that excellent. was a good one too. He showed some good acting chops there. So Nell Carter was an American singer and actress. Beginning in her career in 1970, Carter started in theater, singing and later crossed over to television. Carter was perhaps best known for her role as Nell Harper on the NBC sitcom Gimme a Break, which originally aired from 1981 to 1987. Carter received two Emmy and two Golden Globe Award nominations for her work on the series. Prior to Gimme a Break, Carter won a Tony Award for Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical in 1978 for her performance in the Broadway musical Ain't Miss It Behaving, as well as a Primetime Emmy Award for her reprisal of the role on television in 1982. Now, I remember that show, Give Me a Break. Uh, she played like a housekeeper to like, I think it was like a retired cop. Is that yeah. the premise of it? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it was good. You know, I remember watching it back in the 80s, but it's like one of those ones that you really don't hear about anymore. Like, I, I've never, I guess, seen reruns of it played anywhere. I don't think I have. I always remembered her in Modern Problems. I don't know if you ever saw that movie with Chevy Chase and he gets telekinetic powers after Gart wasted. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, uneven. But I remember her in it because she was trying to exercise the demon out of Chevy Chase. Yes, yes. It's coming back to me. Yes, I do remember that. We also had a Joyce DeWitt um, reference there, and uh, she is an American actress known for playing Janet Wood on the ABC sitcom Three's Company from 1977 to 1984. And I believe I've mentioned a couple times already on these podcasts that I am a huge fan of Three's Company. And um, as we all know, uh, John Ritter was the star of that show, and he you know, carried it, but I think Joyce DeWitt probably doesn't get enough credit for being, you know, I guess you could say his uh, loyal sidekick there. Because they had they had a shakeup with the cast. Uh, you know, Suzanne Somers was on for a while, and then they got um, a second girl. I can't remember her name. And then they actually got a third Jenny one. Jenny Harris. Yeah. So they got a second person, and I believe even a third person. <laughs> so uh, you The know, last one was Priscilla Barnes. Yeah, Priscilla Barnes, yeah. But Joyce, three blondes. Yeah, three blondes. I couldn't. I remember Suzanne Summers. I couldn't remember the second and third, <laughs> to be honest with you. But Joyce Duet, I think, probably doesn't get enough credit because she you know, stuck with the show the whole time, along with John Ritter. And uh, anyone out there who's never watched it, uh, you definitely got to check out Three's Company if you're looking for a show to binge because it's um, – it's a masterpiece, really. <laughs> John Ritter is a very, very talented actor, very brilliant performer. And uh, Matt Thompson is also a big fan. You know, he's mentioned that a number of times. Yeah. You know, the one thing about that show is that just like in Married with Children, where we have Steve fans and we have Jefferson fans, right. you know, in different camps, for Three's Company, we have Mr. Roper and Mr. Furley. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don Knotts was uh, Mr. Furley, wasn't he? And they uh, they spun off, didn't they? Didn't the the Ropers? Didn't they have their own spinoff show? I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I do right. remember. Uh, yeah. Norman Fell, right? And Audrey Lindley. 
Yeah, they, they had a show called The Ropers. And then when they sold the building, that's when Furley came in. And I, I like both Mr. Furley and uh, The Ropers. I just credit Don Knotts for coming up with a new character instead of just doing something the same old thing. Right. And uh, a little bit of trivia for you. One of John Ritter's biggest influences was Don Knotts. Really? When he heard that Don Knotts was going to be on the show, he was giddy as a schoolboy, and he couldn't wait to meet and work with, not just meet, but work with his idol. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the other thing I'll say about the Ropers is that they're pretty much like proto-Bundies. Yeah. You know, if, if you if you look at their dialogue, it's almost like Mrs. Roper was like the sex crazed housewife, <laughs> and like you know Norman Fell's character, Mr. Roper was very, like it's very much almost like a, like an early Al Bundy. Like there are a lot of uh, elements, you know, that they took from that. Yeah, I feel like that might have been like some of the inspiration that they got for uh, Alan Pegg. Yeah, I can definitely see that. There's also a reference to another '70s star. That's Ron Palillo. What was that name again? Horshack, Arnold Horshack. Born April 2nd, 1949 to August 14th, 2012. He was best known for his role as the endearingly dim-witted character Arnold Horshack in the ABC sitcom Welcome Back, Cotter. That ran from 1975 to 1979. He was the only sweat hog I could not stand. I didn't like him. <laughs> <laughs> he had a very distinct laugh. Yeah, and I love Freddie Boom Boom Washington. He was always my favorite. Yeah, he was a, a Puerto Rican Jew is the way he uh, billed himself, right? No, that no, no, was no, no, Bo- sorry. That was... Uh, uh, Robert Hedges. Robert Hedges is Epstein. Epstein, and, that's it. And, of course, John Travolta is the great uh, Vinnie Barbarino. <laughs> anyway... I guess it's a joke about a bunch of actors and actresses from the 70s and 80s who career went nowhere after their shows went off the air. Breaking into Wrigley Field. How else could you embarrass me? Well, I could pull up the shade when you're taking a shower. (laughs) Daddy. So proud of you. Now I can tell all my friends my dad's an ex-con instead of a shoe salesman. <laughs> you see that, Peg? She's proud of me. Yes. She's also proud of her shiny, shiny shoes. <laughs> They're shiny. Ah, oh, come on, Peg. So we had a little fun. It's not like everybody knows about this. Hey, Dad, look. You made the headline on the sports page. Look, loons invade Wrigley Field. What? Damn, Presley, they misspelled my name. Alberti. Alberti? Alberti. I like it. Peggy Birdie. I really like it. So now they're back in the house and uh, Kelly comes down. And what does she have to say? Shiny, shiny shoes. <laughs> That's not the. She's done that more than once, right? Yeah, she she actually says that in season eleven. There's a flashback scene 
where uh, Kelly is in the backseat of the car, like a child Kelly, and it's like Al and Peg are sitting in the front and they're like hippies. Oh. Remember she hits her head and it's like she was a really smart girl. She hits her head <laughs> in the car and all of a sudden it's like she looks down, she's like shiny, shiny shoes. And that's like sort of the, the backstory for how Kelly became stupid. You know, I think that's a great theory. Who knows? Head injuries can do incredible things to people. But anyway, so they're back in the house. And what happens, Luigi? I forget. So then in comes Joe Morgan with Mike Piazza. Hi, I'm Joe Morgan. Are you Al Birdie? Uh, no, no. I believe the birdie you're looking for is the, uh, the dodo over there. Hey, that's Joe Morgan. Kids, that's, that's Joe Morgan. Mike Piazza, that's Joe... Joe Morgan, that's Mike Piazza! <laughs> now, what are you guys doing here? Just trying to make an honest buck. <laughs> And with just about every sport on strike, you guys are the biggest news story going. Mind if I do a little interview? No problem. He tries to sell shoes. He tries to satisfy his wife. He does neither. Back to you, Joe. And who is this lovely lady? That's my daughter, Kelly. The redhead here is her mother, Rodan. <laughs> oh, sure, go ahead, Joe. Interview away. Turn on the camera. How does this thing work again? <laughs> Turn it on when I'm talking and off when you think you have something to say. Got it. <laughs> We're here with the leader of the Wrigley Field break-in boys, Al Birdie. That's Bundy. Birdie, let me ask you this. Why? You know, I've asked him that myself over the years. He, he says he's either too tired Pay or no sleep. attention to the big red machine, Joe. <laughs> Why did we play baseball? For the love of the game. Just like every American husband, it's all right seven months out of the year to sit on a couch with a bowl of pretzels and a frosty cold one and watch baseball. Since that right has been violated, and the owners and players have not been able to resolve their differences, we just simply decided to play the game ourselves. Unfortunately, our audience might have missed that since the camera is suddenly shooting Baywatch. <laughs> anyway, Al, it seems that you're not alone. Are you aware that a challenge has been issued by another group of out-of-shape fat guys from St. Louis? <laughs> what? Wait, you mean another team of geezers wants to play my dad's geezers? Well, that couldn't possibly happen. We have tickets for the theater. Silencio, Consuela. <laughs> well, Al, do you accept the challenge from St. Louis? In a word, Joe. Abso-freaking-lutely. <laughs> sports fans this year's major league baseball season may be at an end but the game continues on i was just trying my autofocus thingy 
Baseball is America's game. It belongs to the people, and the people is us. So I, Alberti, say, let there be baseball. Let there be life. Oh, boy. And this is where I got a little excited, I must say, because Joe Morgan was one of my heroes. Born September 19th, 1943 to October 11th, 2020. Just died this last year. It was sad. He's an American former professional second baseman. He played with the Houston Astros, the Cincinnati Reds, the San Francisco Giants, the Phillies of Philadelphia, the Oakland Athletics, and he won two World Series champions with the Reds in 75 and 76. And he was named the uh, National League MVP in each of those years. He is one of the greatest second basemen of all time. I loved watching him play. And he was inducted to the Hall of Fame in 1990. After retiring, he became a baseball broadcaster for the Reds, the Giants, and ESPN. And um, he had uh, recently hosted a show called a nationally syndicated radio show on Sports USA. And he served as a special advisor to the Reds. And something interesting, he was part of the Big Red Machine, which is referenced when Al tells Joe, pay no attention to the Big Red Machine. And that Big Red Machine, <laughs> that was the nickname for the Cincinnati Reds that dominated National League from 1970 to 79. That also included Johnny Bench, Dave Concepcion, and Pete Rose. It's one of the best lineups in baseball history. But uh, he has a cameraman. And that cameraman is Michael Piazza, born September 4th, 1968. And he was a catcher. Let me tell you, there are and catchers in baseball. They're either really good offensively and mediocre defensively or mediocre offensively and really good defensively. He was the former. He was a great at slugging, but he was not the greatest at defense. There's a story that goes around that uh, one day during practice, he um, was practicing a throw to second because catchers have to try and throw to second to catcher would be base dealer he hit his pitcher i forgot who the pitcher was right in the ass <laughs> the next day at practice all the pitchers had bullseye markings on their butt <laughs> <laughs> as a joke <laughs> but a little bit more about him he played from 1992 to t- 2007 he played most notably for the new york mets and the la dodgers in fact he was a rookie with the dodgers and was rookie of the year he did have a brief stint with the Florida Marlins, the San Diego Padres, and the Athletics. He was a 12-time All-Star and a 10-time Silver Slugger winner at catcher. But notice he had no gold gloves. Like I said, defense, no, he wasn't that good. And he produced a strong offensive numbers. And <laughs> he recorded 427 home runs. 396 of them were hit as a catcher. He eventually moved to first base. And he is in the Hall of Fame. He was like probably one of the two great catchers for the Mets, the other being Gary Carter. I think Gary Carter was better overall. I agree. I mean, you know, I also think, you know, Stephen, it has to do with like age. Like, you know, I mean, I think for yourself, like, you know, you came of age in the 70s, right? 70s so and 80s, yeah. Right. So it's like, you know, you remember the big red machine in action. And it's like for myself, it's like I was, you know, a kid watching the 86 Mets win the World Series. 
you know, so it's like, that's the time period to me. Like that's my golden age. And I think like, it really has to do with like, however, whatever age you were when you were watching it, like those are always the, the best years that you, you remember and the best players in your mind. Right. Oh yeah. That big red machine was fun to watch, even though I was a Cardinals fan, but they weren't producing much then. A little bit of trivia for you too. Mike Piazza is enthralled with someone. Who's he enthralled with? I forgot. Oh, our beloved Kelly. Yes. His camera is focused on Kelly. And Joe Morgan has to keep guiding the camera back to him in his interview. But something interesting is that Mike Piazza was single at the time. So he was probably trying to look for a wife. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? He might, that might, uh, he might, he might have actually been looking at her. <laughs> yeah, well, well, Kelly was really like uh, hamming it up for the camera, huh? Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and she looked amazing. Yeah, she did. Nothing. But Christina Applegate, when she walked down those stairs, it's like wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he might have actually been looking. Uh, and, you know, and there's a Baywatch reference there, as we all know. Uh, Baywatch is an American action drama television series about the L.A. County lifeguards, as well as Hawaii lifeguards who patrol the beaches of L.A. County, California, and Hawaii, starring David Hasselhoff. The show was canceled after its first season on, on, NBA, on NBC, but survived through syndication and later became the most watched television Hello? show in the world. The show ran in its original title and format from 1989 to 1999. You want to know something? Sometimes I watch Baywatch for the plot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm lying. <laughs> Well, you know what's interesting about that is, uh, you know, it mentioned that it became the most most watched television show in the world. That's because it actually ran overseas a lot. I uh, I remember reading one time that David Hasselhoff has one of the most recognizable faces in the world, just because of of how much Baywatch aired, or you know how long it was on and how how much it aired overseas. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure they had, you know, depending on the country, I'm sure it was dubbed in other languages, but it's still David Hasselhoff's face, you know. He's very popular in Germany. I know that the Germans are really big into this. Maybe some of our German fans could pipe in on the Facebook page. Because uh, I believe, like, he sang, like, some song. Like, in other words, like, he's, Hasselhoff is like a singer. But, like, his songs are only popular, like, outside the U.S., not within the U.S. <laughs> that should tell you something. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I do believe he sang the uh, closing theme to Baywatch. Did he really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I, you got to reach out. Yeah. yeah. I think The Current of Love, that's what it's called. That's funny. I know that. I, I liked him more on, I mean, I, I watched Baywatch, but I liked him more on Knight Rider. You guys ever watch that show? Oh, of course. I loved yeah, Knight Rider. Yeah, I was growing up. Yeah, I loved that show. I, I have a picture. I'll post it on the, I'll post it in the comment section when this airs. I have a picture of me as a probably four or five-year-old kid with a, a kit car. Uh, you know, the Power Wheels that we, that we sure. used to have? With me with a kit. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I loved Knight Rider as a kid. Well, I'll tell you, I did not watch Baywatch for any of the guys. <laughs> Pam Anderson. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, the thing is, like, you know, she was like just one. I mean, like all of them. Yeah. I mean, like, it was just like, you know, like red bathing suit, by, uh, a breathing, red bathing suit. It just kept going. Yep. Yeah. You know, and that cast and, and that cast. Yeah. We also have a reference to Rodan. Skyscraper. 
when he moves, the whole earth quivers and quakes, and an abyss of horror opens up. See these prehistoric beasts emerge from the bowels of the earth after 200 million years to devastate mankind. Supersonic jets cannot catch him. Rockets cannot stop him. Armored tanks are helpless before him. Even guided missiles are powerless. See Rodin destroy a modern city, leveling it to the earth with a killing airstream of his mighty wings. Nothing can stop him. Nothing escapes this monstrous beast of evil. So Rodan is a fictional kaiju, if I said that correctly, which is a strange creature or monster, which first appeared as the title character in Ishiro Honda's 1956 film Rodan, produced and distributed by Toho. Following its debut standalone appearance, Rodan would go on to be featured in numerous entries in the Godzilla franchise, including Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, Invasion of Astro Monster, Destroy All Monsters, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2, and Godzilla Final Wars, as well as the legendary pictures-produced film Godzilla King of the Monsters. In 2014, IGN ranked Rodan as number six on their top six Japanese movie monsters list. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but the Japanese, when they started with the Godzilla and Mothra and all that, those creatures were formed by radiation. That was yes. their statement against uh, nuclear weapons. That's right. right. Yeah, they're the only nation that really suffered from nuclear weapons in any war. Yeah. So I mean, it's a big debate: should we or shouldn't have we? We're not going to get into that, but you know, that was Japan's biggest fear. And as a matter of fact, that spilled into American the- movie theaters in the fifties as well. When he has you had all these creatures growing to incredible sizes or at, making out at mutations through radiation. It was the nuclear scare phase of movies. And Stephen, you know, I remember seeing those films a lot in the 80s. They used to play on independent television stations. Yes. I remember they were like Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon films. Uh, you know, I haven't really seen them on broadcast television. Like, again, unless maybe they're like on some kind of cable station. But I, I remember that they were very commonplace during that time period. On that, uh, on that, I, I was just going to chime in on that Rodan joke there. I got to be honest with you. I've seen this episode, 
you know, dozens of times over the years. And I always thought that was like some sort of Roseanne crack, <laughs> which, oh. which, you know, would fit the bill. Cause we know married with children has certainly taken shots at Roseanne in the, in the past. <laughs> Going back to the episode though, what I really get a kick out of is when Joe Morgan says, hi, I'm Joe Morgan. Are you Alberti? <laughs> Because this goes back, you know, to um, problems in the past here where Al's name is wrong. Like, you know, one time he was considered uh, Al, what was it? Al Boondy? Well, Mr. We've had, Boondy, that's it. Yeah, we've had Bumby, Budney, Birdie. Uh, we we had Alf Bundy once. Uh, we have, <laughs> yeah, before it's all over, we'll have Mr. Boondy, like you said. So, yeah, it goes to the joke, you know, Al, he's he's not important enough for someone to get his name right. In other words, they just, <laughs> you know what I mean? When, you, when, you're, when you're an underling, when you're an underling or, a, you know, whatever you want to call Al, you just, whatever your name you're given, that's the name you go of. And it's not, it's, you're never important enough to get it right. Whatever we call you, if we call you Bumby, you're Bumby. If we call you Mr. Boondy, you're Boondy. If we call you Alf, that's the name you get, period, you know? <laughs> He kept trying to correct him. Yeah, but. exactly. And he just kept saying Mr. Birdie because, you know, he's he's not important enough to get his name right. <laughs> you, you know, and that's interesting. Like, you know, I've thought about this through the years. If you look at people, how they refer to Al. So his closest friend. So whether it's Steve or Jefferson, call him Al. Right. Like his neighbors who maybe he's in, like, let's say Donnelly. Right. You know, Dan Chase's favorite Donnelly. Like they always refer to him by his last name, Bundy. Right. Mm-hmm. But then when you like go to like people who come in, like who've never met him before, it's very common for that's when they use these names that are incorrect, you know, Bugney or Bumby or whatever it is, <laughs> right? And, and they use it as a device. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, Stephen, you've taken uh, classes on comedy, right? I don't know. I mean, that's what it seems the construct seems to be to me. It probably is. Uh, I took one class on film and comedy when I went to University of Oklahoma. Very fun class. I really enjoyed it. And I think it's going back about Chris. What Chris just said is that it's he's not important enough to know his name. Uh, he thinks he's more important than what he is. But uh, in reality, it doesn't matter. Because the celebrities, they get their names right, but not him. Right, yeah. Not him. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's funny. You know, you know, part of this joke that I always find funny is usually when it's someone screwing up his name, it's it's – it's someone really like a celebrity or someone really important, like an athlete or whatever. And, and Al always thinks that he's important enough to correct him. Like he, you know, he corrects Joe Morgan, he, Joe Morgan. He's like, it, it's Bundy. Yeah. He's like, so birdie. <laughs> so he like slaps him back down into his place. <laughs> he's like, your name's birdie. And that's what I'm going to call you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, <laughs> but this is true all through because he tries to pride himself on scoring the four touchdowns in one game right? all the time. But it doesn't matter to anyone because they all say the same thing. You know, high school football. <laughs> yeah, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's one little joke I want to point out. So when Al talks to Peg, he calls her Consuela. And Al called Peg Consuela in the Ride Scare episode. This is when the Naomi character comes into the... Uh, living room when she knocks on the door that's when he remember we reviewed that one chris with uh, yep. carolyn yep so uh, i'm just curious where this consuela name comes from because it's like it's been repeated 
I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure where that comes from. You're correct. We we've heard that a couple of times now. You know, I can't believe Dad and the rest of the bad news butt cracks are trying to form their own league. <laughs> trying to form their own league and tour across the country. Well, they did beat Street Lewis. <laughs> That's St. Louis, honey. Well, the men of no man, they want to do something. Since the baseball players are on strike, they want to form their own league. And they want to go playing. They find out that there's a team in St. Louis. And a little bit of uh, something people may want to know is that Chicago, St. Louis, those cities have always had a little rivalry between each other. And <clears throat> it goes back even before the Cardinals-Cubs rivalry, which is one of the oldest and classiest rivalries in Major League, not just in Major League Baseball, but in all sports. And so when they hear that there's a St. Louis team, they want to take them on. And it was a bunch of same guys doing the same thing. Bud says, you know, I can't believe Dad and the rest of the bad news butt cracks are trying to form their own league. Trying to form their own <laughs> league to tour across the country. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, this was a play on, on the old movie, The Bad News Bears, which I actually watched the other day. It was on one of my premium movie channels. The original 1976 American sports comedy. It was directed by Michael Ritchie and written by Bill Lancaster. And Walter Matthau is an out-and-out drunk, former minor league pitcher. And he gets his this old, this girl, Tatum O'Neill, to be the pitcher in his, on his team that he is coaching. They're called the Bad News Bears. and Or they're called the Bears, and they're considered bad news because they were pretty horrible at the beginning. It's a really dark comedy. But it really, it's really good. And then there were a couple more movies, The Bad News Bears and Breaking Training. That was, it was enjoyable. It was more focused on the kids than it was on the adults. And then they had The Bad News Bears go to Japan. My feeling is they should have stayed there. That was in 1978. <laughs> that, that one was horrible because the cast kept changing. And that was Tony Curtis, who really wasn't acting as a manager. There was a short-lived TV show, and I do remember it because I remember watching it. And that TV show was just only on for one summer. And it had a young Corey Feldman in it. He he was one of the Bad News Bears kids. Yeah. I and uh, Jack Warden, he was Buttermaker, the, the guy that uh, Walter Matthau played. And Walter Matthau was only in the first one. There was a remake in 2005 with, oh God, I can't think of his name all of a sudden. Billy Bob Thornton? Yeah. And it was all right. But anyway, The Bad News Bears is a really good movie. The original one and maybe Breaking Training I would recommend, but not go to Japan. Yeah. And Stephen, you know, there was one little joke in there that I feel wasn't resolved correctly in the script. So Kelly says, well, they beat Street Lewis. Right. And then Peg corrects and says, that's St. <laughs> Louis, honey. And the thing is, that was it. You, yeah, you know, I do. Like, I vaguely remember that one, yes. So I, I just felt like, wait a minute. I mean, okay, Street Lewis, the joke is ST for street. Okay, Kelly's, you know, a moron. He's a malapropism. 
So Peggy corrects her, but it's like, you would think that maybe Kelly would have like a follow-up joke to complete the thought, but it just stopped. You know, I was just thinking, just, just for, I was just thinking of all the dumb things that Kelly has ever said, that might actually be the one that makes the most sense. Like, I'm just thinking of someone who, let's just say you're English second language or you're someone who's not from the United States and you move here. If you see St. Louis on, you know, written on paper, you might actually think, hey, that's Street Lewis. <laughs> but, but you know, Kelly is not English second language. <laughs> and she, she actually graduated high school in the U.S., so she should know that that's St. Louis. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've actually spent like two weeks in St. Louis, maybe like about 20 years ago. Great, great town. Beautiful city. Yeah, I, I visited there as a flight attendant, and uh, it had, you know, of course you have the St. Louis Arch and all that good stuff. But one of the cool things I enjoyed there was um, they have the International Chess Hall of Fame there. I don't know if you visited that, but um, I, I'm a big fan of chess. It's a, a game I enjoy. It's it's a game that's sort of dying, to be honest with you, because not some, not very many people know how to play it. <laughs> but um, I went to the Chess Hall of Fame there. They have a huge pawn piece uh that's actually like 10 feet tall i have a picture of me standing next to it i'll, I'll post it down in the comment section it's pretty funny <laughs> yeah wow one of the things uh, i remember about st louis is that it's it's the one city that they have a museum for everything i remember there was like a car museum there was a tums museum yeah a beer museum right <laughs> like i think like for any anything you could think of like they had a museum for it uh, i was there like on a work assignment and i got to actually spend a lot of time uh, you know, sort of touring during the day. Like I had to work a night shift while I was there for two weeks. So I actually got in a car and I drove around most of the city and I saw a lot of these things. You know, it was, it was an interesting uh, trip for me, but uh, like I said, very interesting from that perspective. It's like a museum, like a, a museum on heartburn, you know? <laughs> well, the thing is uh, I visit St. Louis a lot because I'm a Cardinals fan. I like to go there and Actually, I did not realize this until just a couple of years ago when I made this haunted tour of St. Louis. It ended with the house where supposedly the exorcism took place uh, on a boy. And then William Peter Blatty took that concept and turned it into the novel and the movie, The Exorcist. Interesting. Yeah. And anyway, you're right. There's a lot of history to it. It's an older city. Not quite as old as, uh, say, up there in the Northeast, like in New Jersey. I don't know where you live uh, exactly. Uh, Luigi, is it Trenton or where? Uh, near Morristown. Okay. So well, we anyway, the whole colonial thing going on. Up here. <clears throat> yeah, so you have those older cities, and they have a lot more history. And that's what I like about St. Louis. A lot of history. I get into the history stuff. I'll visit museums and you know, last time I was there, I, I have never visited before, but it's the courthouse where the Dred Scott case was argued. And Dred Scott being a seminal case since during the Civil War. Yeah, I visited that. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. And, of course, they have the arch. And that arch is beautiful. I've been up in it at least four or five times. And they got a great museum down there on Expansion West. So uh, St. Louis has a lot of good stuff. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, I guess this league of his is going to be a success after all. Bud, this is your father we're talking about. When has he ever done anything successful? Family? 
what you're looking at? The Sultan of Sweat. <laughs> That's right, Peg, charge the mound. <laughs> but they're lining up for us. You know, this thing could really be big. We've even got a sponsor. Who would be stupid enough to sponsor you guys? <laughs> Only the wealthiest man in Chicago. Michael Jordan? <laughs> Wealthier. And my guy can hit the curveball. <laughs> Family? Allow me to introduce to you the owner of our team, the Chicago Cleavage, <laughs> and the owner of the best damn nudie bar in town, Akbar Johnson. <laughs> Greetings, all. <laughs> Bud? <laughs> Your team is sponsored by a nudie bar? <laughs> Not just our team, Peg, but every team in the league. The Boston Bazooms, the New Jersey Nenes, the Buffalo Bodacious Tatas, and the San Francisco guys. <laughs> and you know what the best part is, Peg? Your uniform has a trap door. <laughs> if only the couch had one, Peg. <laughs> All our games will be away games. I'll be gone six weeks. I made up the schedule myself. <laughs> Isn't that great, Peg? You mean we won't be together for six weeks? Yes. <laughs> it's like the second honeymoon I've always wanted. <laughs> and then Al tell, says, family, guess what you're looking at? And Peg says, the Sultan of Sweat. There's another pun. That should be the Sultan of Swat, who was Babe Ruth. He had a bunch of other dumb names to go along with it. So, Al and his no-man guys, they want to go out on the road. The problem is, they need someone to sponsor them. Someone to provide the wealth. And only the wealthiest man in Chicago can do that. But Kelly thinks it's one particular person. Who was that, Luigi? Michael Jordan. <laughs> And, uh, but instead, you know, Al's guy can hit the curveball. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is an interesting footnote in time capsule into the career of Michael Jordan. So in one of uh, Michael Jordan's retirements, he actually played baseball for a little while. So he surprised the sports world by signing a, a minor league baseball contract with the White Sox on February 7th, 1994. And he reported to spring training in Sarasota, Florida, and was assigned to the team's minor league system on March, on, on March 31st, 1994. Jordan has stated that this decision was made to pursue the dream of his late father, who had always envisioned his son as a major league baseball player. The White Sox were another team owned by the Bulls owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, who continued to honor Jordan's basketball contract during the years he played baseball. In 1994, Jordan played for the Birmingham Barons, a double-A minor league affiliate of the Chicago White Sox, batting 202 with three home runs, 51 runs batted in, 30 stolen bases, 114 strikeouts, 51 base on balls, and 11 errors. He also appeared for the Scottsdale Scorpions in the 1994 Arizona Fall League, batting 252 against the top prospects in baseball. On November 1st, 1994, his number 23 was retired by the Bulls in a ceremony that included the erection of a permanent sculpture known as the Spirit outside the United Center. Hey, Beavis. 
He said erection. (laughs) (laughs) So what's interesting now, so the nudie bar owner enters, and his name is Akbar Johnson. And we have a very stereotypical Indian accent who comes in the door. And in the first episode of season eight, the owner was Ahmed, and he wasn't seen. And then for the next episode, production code-wise, so the next two episodes are the Psycho Dad episodes, and then we go to an episode that myself and Chris will be reviewing, uh, The Naked and the Dead, but the Mostly Naked. The nudie bar owner is named Iqbal. So they're playing to some Indian stereotype. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I was looking at MJ's stats. Uh, the thirty stolen bases—that's decent. <laughs> that's really good. Try, yeah, that, that's really good, actually. You know, I mean, as we know, it, MJ was an incredible athlete, so it's not surprising that he was able to steal bases so successfully. But he definitely could not hit the curveball—that's for sure. Gr- the greatest basketball player of all time could not hit the curveball, but he could steal some bases. I'll give him that. Well, if he prayed to Joe Boo, he could have. <laughs> if you ever seen Major League, you know Serrano, right. Joe Boo. You know he yeah. worshipped Joe Boo because hey, Jesus Christ wouldn't let him, didn't help him hit a curveball. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie. Al's League is sponsored by nudie bars across the country, and they include the Boston Bazooms, the New Jersey Nenes, the Buffalo Bodacious Tatas, and the San Francisco Guys. <laughs> San Francisco guys. Yes, that's a very it's a very breast centric uh, episode. Yeah, I did notice those team names. I just don't see them listed on here. That's all. That was pretty crazy. And kids, I haven't forgotten you. I have a special surprise. We have to go with you. Hell no. <laughs> no, but if this thing works out, Daddy will be gone for many many years. And there's something very important I need you to do. What? Uh, Something about this makes me want to tell old high school football stories. Well, you're lucky. I have a sudden urge to read Biggins. Uh, I don't care what anybody says. This has got to be the worst job in the world. No, I've got the worst job in the world. Kelly, it's Brett Saberhagen. Well, then why does his name tag say Bobby Bonilla? <laughs> he called in sick. Hey, Saberhagen, is that your pizza truck in the red zone? Come on, Tartable, if I don't get this pizza here in 30 minutes, they'll take it out of my check. At least you get a check. I get paid in mall dollars. <laughs> Danny, can I bribe you with a pizza? Let me check my security guard handbook. Yep. Hey, wait a minute. That's our pizza. Tell it to the commissioner. So, um, Bud and Kelly go to work in the shoe store, and... You have this great opening scene when they're in the shoe store and they're trying to get a shoe on a woman's foot. Bud makes a comment that uh, he has has an instinct to tell old football stories. But of course, what football stories would he have to tell, Al's? I don't know. 
I thought it was funnier that Kelly wanted to read Biggins. Yes. <laughs> that That's the episode I want to see right there. I want to see that episode. I'll pay to see that one. <laughs> oh, my God. I thought that, that part was funny. That part I really enjoyed. Bud and Kelly at the shoe store. And then, of course, later we'll talk about what, what Bud does a little bit later. And Bud wearing Al's clothes. You know, the ex- it's almost the exact same uniform. It's just that tie is longer because Bud's so short. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. And while they're in the shoe store, they get to meet a couple of uh, striking baseball players. One of those was Brett Saberhagen. Brett Saberhagen walks in wearing Bobby Bonilla's name tag. <laughs> Brett Saberhagen is an American former professional baseball right-handed pitcher. He played in Major League Baseball for the Kansas City Royals, New York Mets, Colorado Rockies, and Boston Red Sox from 1984 through 1999 and a comeback in 2001. Saberhagen is a three-time All-Star, a two-time Cy Young Award winner, and a Gold Glove Award winner. He led the MLB in wins and ERA in 1989 and threw a no-hitter back in 1991. The reference to Bobby Bonilla was because Bobby Bonilla was the highest-paid player in the league in 1994. So Bobby Bonilla is a Major League Baseball player of Puerto Rican descent who played in the major leagues from 1986 to 2001. Through his 16 years in professional baseball, Bonilla accumulated a 279 batting average with a 358 on-base percentage and a 472 slugging percentage. He was on the Florida, Florida Marlins team that won the 1997 World Series. Bonilla led the league in extra base hits, 78, during the 1990 Major League Baseball season and doubles during the 1991 season. He also participated in six All-Star games and won three Silver Slugger awards. And as I mentioned earlier, from 1992 to 1994, he was the highest paid player in the league. Now, we don't see him on screen, but I guess that uh, he was referenced because he was the highest paid player at the time. So one thing I'll add to that that was actually not in the notes. I don't know if you guys know this, but Bonilla actually signed a really, really unusual contract on top of that. He actually still gets paid $1.2 million per year by the New York Mets to this day. Did y'all know that? No. Yeah. I'll send you this story. I I was actually reading it here because as soon as as you mentioned he was the highest paid, I remembered this weird story. He still gets paid $1.2 million per year despite the fact that he retired back in 1999. It's a really, really weird clause. uh, And very few athletes get it. Allen Iverson, who, of course, played in the NBA, he has a really weird contract, too, that if he lives to age 50, I believe it is, they're going to start the Philadelphia 76ers are going to start paying him I believe 5 million dollars a year. <laughs> so it's a really weird, you know, very few players get those weird clauses, but Bonilla is one of them. So he's basically set for life. He's going to be paid 1.2 million dollars a year. <laughs> just basically surprised they haven't tried to off him. Well, yeah. <laughs> just for just for basically doing nothing, which you know, that's that's good uh that's good residual income for him. I mean, his agent was smart for working that deal out for him. <laughs> I just hope Tom Brady doesn't hear about this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You'll be the next one. Right, right. 
So, so we also have uh, Danny Tartable, who is a former right fielder and designated hitter in Major League Baseball. Born to Cuban parents in San Juan, Puerto Rico, he is the son of Jose Tartable, who played for the Major Leagues from 1962 to 1970. Now, something really interesting here. He actually played for six teams. Uh, so I, I, I figured, in the words of our, of our great Alex Edwards, he played for more teams than Xavier McDaniel. <laughs> <laughs> he played for the Seattle Mariners back for a couple of years, the Kansas City Royals for five years, the New York Yankees for three years, the Oakland Athletics, Chicago White Sox, and Philadelphia Phillies for one year each. So, yeah. He he puts Xavier McDaniel to shame there as far as number of teams played for. Oh boy, yeah, that's amazing, and that probably means he is probably problematic behind the scenes when they get traded that much or swapped out, or I don't know Possibly, if he was trying yeah. out. Yeah, because some players are just like that; they have hot heads or big egos or whatever, and that hurts them. Anyway. Brett starts walking away with the pizza, and Kelly gets upset. She says, hey, wait a minute, that's our pizza. He says, tell that to the commissioner, which I thought was strange, because why would he say tell the commissioner? I mean, what's the commissioner going to do? But let me tell you who the commissioner is. That is Bud Selig. His full name is Alan Huber Bud Selig, and he was born in 1934, he was an American baseball executive who current who uh, he's not the current com, or he's the commissioner emeritus of baseball. He has served as the ninth commissioner of baseball. He initially served as acting commissioner beginning in 92 before being named the official commissioner in 98. Uh, ironically, he really shouldn't have had that simply because he was an owner of the Milwaukee Brewers. And that's a conflict of interest. And a lot of players objected to that, and rightfully so. But anyway, he oversaw baseball through the 94 strike, the introduction of the wild card and interleague play, and the merging of the National and American Leagues under the office of the commissioner. And he was instrumental in organizing the World Baseball Classic in 2006. He did introduce revenue sharing. However, it never really got accepted. He was credited for the financial turnaround of baseball during his tenure, with a 400% increase in the revenue of Major League Baseball and an annual record-breaking attendance. And that really happened more also because after 95, you know, there were people weren't coming back to the baseball games and they were trying to, they did a lot more attractions to get people in, a lot more unique things to happen to get people in. They, um, and one other thing that really helped baseball was the, research, the renaissance in baseball stadiums. Because old ones were torn down and new ones were built up. Because for years they had those multi-arenas where you could have football and baseball, like Riverfront Stadium in in, uh, Cincinnati. But now fields were built specifically for that specific sport of baseball. So you saw a lot of good architecture in the 90s on new baseball stadiums. Then they get to go and uh, to play the games and you get to hear that old old song by jack norworth take me out to the ball game why do they sing that when they're already at a ball game i never could figure that one out (laughs) (laughs) but that's a tradition and it's great Uh, it's i love to hear harry carey do it 
when he would stand up at a Cubs game and he said, okay, everybody, one, two, three, and that song plays. And it was written in 1908 by Jack Norworth and Albert Von Tilzer. And that became the official anthem of North American baseball, although neither of its authors had attended a game. Isn't that weird? They never attended a game before writing the song. The song's chorus is a tent traditionally sung during the middle of the seventh inning stretch of a baseball game. Fans are encouraged to sing along, and in some ballparks, the word home team are replaced with the team name, team name like, so it's root, root, root for the Cardinals or Cubs, you know, something like that, instead of just saying home team. I know a little bit about this song. Uh, the song was actually written, it was composed again, a Tin Pan Alley song, which is a New York City uh, section of New York City where these songs were written. And it was actually written about, they were riding an elevated train and they passed by the polo grounds, which is where the New York Giants, who are today the San Francisco Giants, were playing. And I believe the story is that, you know, there were a big billboard at the time saying, you know, baseball game, you know, and that was what inspired the uh, lyrics to the song. While the song is playing, you see all these headlines. You also see different people batting like Jefferson and Griff and Bob Rooney. And these uh, headlines, Birdie Sparks Cleavage. <laughs> and then there's another one, Cleavage Deflates Tatas. <laughs> Bob Rooney. And then, then there was a crowd doing the tomahawk chop. And then we had Cleavage Explodes in ninth. <laughs> Silicone Madness Night, right? Yeah. And everyone's chanting, Birdie, Birdie, Birdie. And Al tries to correct him. That's Bundy. And then they continue, Birdie. They have some more uh, headlines. Cleavage to play snack trays in the Working Man's World Series. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard breasts outside of this show called snack trays. Where do they come from? I don't know. I I've never heard of that from. either. Oh, man. <laughs> oh my man God. i just gotta say can you imagine a show on network television and in the year 2021 uh trying to refer to breasts as snack trays <laughs> that would never in a million years be able to air now <laughs> yeah oh i gotta tell you this real quick is uh when i saw that birdie birdie chant you know and he tries to correct it uh my wife's name was uh robin and I remember, uh, I mean, she's gone now. I miss her. The thing is, uh, my uh, cousin, Jamie and John, they had a couple little kids. And when those kids were growing up, I remember my cousin Jamie introducing, says, this is your Uncle Stephen and your Aunt Robin, just like the Birdie. And so her kids call my wife Aunt Birdie. (laughs) And it stuck. It stuck with her, and so she was. She's been it. She was Aunt Birdie for about eight years. Uh, that's sweet. Yeah. Anyway, while they're at the ball game, and you can see Peg participating, they're doing a tomahawk chop. Ah, and this is very controversial in the world of 2021. So the tomahawk chop is a sports celebration most popularly used by fans of the America Florida State Seminoles. Atlanta Braves baseball team, the Kansas City Chiefs American football team, and in recent years by the English Exeter Chiefs rugby union team. 
The action involves moving the forearm forwards and backwards repetitively with an open palm to simulate a tomahawk chopping and is often accompanied by a distinctive cheer. The Atlanta Braves also developed a foam tomahawk to complement the fans' actions. The motion in the music that often accompanies it has been opposed for being a racist stereotype or caricature of Native American people as the motion is derived from a hypothetical Native American chopping down or scalping his enemy. Yeah, and I think the Cleveland Indians do it too, don't they? Yeah, and I think I think that the uh, writer of this uh, episode and the directors, I think they specifically chose this because in other words... I think they were trying to like depict something that was maybe outrageous or a little, you know, non-politically correct. And this was even back in 1994, there were rumblings at the time. There was uh, like, for example, the uh, St. John's University basketball team were known as the Redmen originally. And in the mid to late 90s, they were renamed the Red Storm, which is what they're named today because of this. So this was like sort of like the early days of political correctness around Native Americans, and the team started to change their names. Isn't it? Isn't uh, Cleveland renaming itself? Like I thought I saw that recently, right? Yes, they are. I don't know what they're if they've come to a conclusion to. You know, I work for a school here in Oklahoma, and the school is Union. It's near Tulsa, between Tulsa and Broken Arrow, and they've always had the uh, moniker Redskins, like the Washington Redskins. And we voted just this right before the school year started. They voted to do away with the name. So they were the union football team and the union basketball team. And there's going to be there's a commission to study what to change the name to. I'm hoping they go. The the biggest one they're looking at is bison or buffalo. I think that would be good. But uh, we're seeing that. Yeah, I think we're seeing that it's inevitable at this point with political correctness going on. Can I have a break now? No. <laughs> Can I have a break now? Uh, ab- absolutely. Thanks. <laughs> Why the hell Saber hanging with my lasagna? <laughs> and then the headline, two-time MVP, Frank Thomas spins newspapers. <laughs> So we saw Frank Thomas there, and he is nicknamed the Big Hurt. He's an American Hall of Fame former first baseman and designated hitter in Major League Baseball who played for three American League teams from 1990 to 2008. All but the last three three years were with the Chicago White Sox. Frank Thomas is a five-time All-Star. He is the only player in Major League history to have seven consecutive seasons with a 300 batting average, 100 RBIs, 100 scored runs, 100 walks, and 20 homers. Thomas also won the AL batting title in 1997 with a 347 mark. Thomas was named the AL's most valuable player by unanimous vote in 1993. That year, he became the first White Sox player to hit 40 homers and led the team to a division title. He repeated as MVP in the strike-shortened 1994 season, batting 353 and leading the league in slugging average and runs. And now he's doing commercials for this testosterone type thing. Yeah, yeah, he sure is. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, more power to him. Uh, I love watching him play. Yep. He was... Oh, God, he was so 
brutal at the plate. He could just pound him out. Oh, yeah. I mean, just look uh, at this guy's shoulders. I mean, well, uh, the, in the scene yeah, where he's standing yeah. there spinning that thing, I mean, that he looks like his shoulders are about twice as wide as mine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Is that where oh. the big hurt comes from? Yeah. yeah. I think so. Yeah. I wouldn't I want to mess so. with him. I'll put it that way. <laughs> anyway, after that, we go back home. How does this thing work again? That's it. Next time I'm hiring a hockey guy. <laughs> Fat woman came into the shoe store today. And Bud still looked up her dress. <laughs> yeah, like I could help it. Her dress, it was, it was everywhere. Hi, Mom. You look nice. How come? Oh. Well, today is the end of your father's road trip, and hopefully the beginning of his seven-minute homestand. So, Mrs. Birdie, this must be a big moment for you. I bet you missed the big guy. Oh, yes. I also miss my husband. You know, the point is that when a man has been gone this long, any man, it's just good to have him back. <laughs> Mom, that's, that's not Dad, it's, it's Dave Winfield. Mind, Mind your business. <laughs> and the Bundy kids walk in. Bud <laughs> does this so perfectly. He's, he's dressed like Al, and he says, a fat woman walked into the shoe store today. <laughs> he says it perfectly. <laughs> and, it kind of reminded me of when Kelly did the same thing. And uh, Kelly um, breaks out, I think it was, when she gets a job at the TV museum. She comes home and talks about her day, and she sounds just like Al <laughs> describing her day, about how some guy tried to go into the Facts of Life land. She got stuck in a turnstile. We greased her up, and she flew into the Enterprise set where no man has gone before. Oh, God, that was hilarious. I think actually thought that was better, but Bud saying a fat woman walked into the shoe store today just had me at the first line. So Peg says, uh, today is the end of your father's road trip and hopefully the beginning of his seven-minute homestand. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a long time for Al. Yeah. Seven minutes. <laughs> uh, that's about twice as long as normal, maybe even three times as normal. <laughs> And Joe, and Joe Morgan comes back. He has to ask her, Mrs. Birdie, this must be a big moment for you. I bet you missed the guy. And, uh, yeah, oh, yes, I miss my husband, you know, to the point that a man has been gone this long. It's just as good to have him back. Mom, that's not Dad. That's Dave Winfield, says Kelly. <laughs> Mind your business, because now Dave Winfield is operating the camera. <laughs> Yeah. I think it's funny when he said, it's like, I should get a hockey guy the next time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, boy. So Dave Winfield, born October 3rd, 1951, is an American former league major MLB player. He was a right fielder. He was a special assistant to the executive director of Major League Baseball Players Association. That's their players union. Over his 22-year career, he played for six teams, the Padres, the Yankees, the Angels, the Blue Jays, the Twins, and the Indians. 
He had the winning hit in the 1992 World Series with the Blue Jays over the Atlanta Braves. So, yeah, he was a good caliber player as well, who uh, Peg was in love with. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, she's in love with anyone who's not her husband, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, the places I've been, the people I've seen. But when you get right down to it, there's no place like home. Come to Papa. <laughs> Look at it. <laughs> oh, Dave, I miss you so much. We've got to do something about this strike. <laughs> Welcome home, Al. You know, it's refreshing to see someone who plays just for the love of the game. Well, it isn't just me, Joe. I mean, kids who play sandlot ball, do they play for money? College kids without scholarships, do they play for money? Anything you do for love, Joe, money should never be a consideration. So the fact that Agbar and the other owners sold the TV rights for your championship game for $3 million doesn't bother you? Not in the slightest, Joe. And I've said this many times before. I've always played the game for $3 million. <laughs> Does Akbar not take the risk? Does Birdie not bring in the fans? The owners are going broke. Show us your books. No. We're the players. You need us. We are the owners. You need us. Players. Owners. Players. Owners. Players. Owners. Players. Owners. Players. I thought it was funny how when Al walks in here, or I guess we've seen this already now at this point, but we see we see Birdie on the back of his jersey. <laughs> so I yeah. guess he, so I guess he just embraced it. <laughs> He's like, hell, if they're he gonna, to. yeah, if they're gonna they're gonna let me play and presumably at some point pay me. <laughs> uh, I guess I'll just wear this jersey that says Birdie. I'll go with it. <laughs> and this is gonna wrap up here and uh, with. Uh, you know, Al's home and uh, the act. What's his name? Akbar. Yeah. Akbar comes in with him. Yeah. So Al hugs Dave Winfield first. Yeah. He hugs Dave Winfield first. And then you know that uh, Akbar's there and he says that uh, Akbar and the other owner sold the TV rights for your championship game for $3 million. And that kind of strikes a nerve with Al. Does that uh, $3 million? And Akbar says, Akbar, you take the risk. And Al says, but does Birdie bring in the fans? Akbar says, the owners are going broke. Al says, show us your books. Akbar says, no. Then it goes in back. We're the players. You need us. We're the owners. You need us. And this is exactly what was going on with baseball. This is what led to the strike. A struggle for power. Who's going to control it? And Bugs Daffy. Bugs Daffy. No, Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> <laughs> you know, lately. Oh, I, mon chéri. Yeah. <laughs> I no, take you to Paris. No, I figure, I figure it out like this now because for years we hear Bug and da- Bugs and Daffy saying duck season, rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season. Now it's skunk season. <laughs> Considering all the <laughs> new out, out there in the news right now. About Pepe Le Pew. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, it was made official today. The owners and players of the National Nudie Bar League failed to reach agreement on player compensation for the upcoming championship series, prompting yet another in a string of unfortunate season-ending walkouts. So, to recap, baseball is on strike, hockey is on strike, and Saturday Night Live just won't end. (laughs) That's three strikes, and we're out. I'm Joe Morgan. 
we now join Filipino slap fighting already in progress. I now call to order this meeting of the National Organization of Men Against Amazonian Masterhood. Brother Jefferson will read the minutes of our last meeting. 801, 802, 803, 804, Anyway, so, like, this brings, it's full circle. It's the same reason why the baseball players went on strike. And then we end with another meeting of no man. Yeah, but first they go back to Filipino slap fighting. Already, already in progress. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, and that was a big thing because ESPN and ESPN2, which was pretty new at the time, they were trying to figure out what are we going to do? We had all these baseball games slotted. I think uh, I think CBS, no, CBS wasn't showing them then. I think it was Fox by then. But they were wondering, what are we going to fill it in? We're supposed to cover the World Series and have all this stuff. Those networks lost a lot of money, too. And so they're trying to figure out, okay, what do we get in here to get ratings, to get people to watch us? And that's, you know, so the networks hurt as well. That's what I don't like about strikes. It hurts too many other people. Yep. Yeah, the same thing happened with the NBA's uh, lockout uh, in 1999. They had a shortened season. Uh, you know, the play was sloppy. The A lot of the players came in out of shape. The... Uh, referees were out of shape, you know, vendors lost money. It, it's never good for the league. Owners lose money, players lose money. It's, it's never good for the league, that's for sure. And, and even Major League uh, Baseball, they suffered a long time for that. It wasn't yep. really until 1997, or was that 98? 98, 98, 98. Yeah. McGuire and when, Sosa. When Mar- yeah, I was about to get to that, oh, and yeah. that really got interest back in baseball. So that was like a five, uh, pretty much a, um, no, not a five year, but more like a four year um, struggle for baseball. Yeah. Because fans weren't coming back in 95. A little bit more in 96, some more in 97, but 98 was when it really took off. Anyway, so we end with another meeting of no ma'am. And Al ends it again. Jefferson, read our minutes of our last meeting. It starts again, 801-802. Anyway, you hear a punch eventually. Yeah, yeah that's I, Ike beating up Jefferson. Yeah. And I think it is rightfully so. You can't wear out a joke too, you can wear out a joke way too much. Yep, he had to have the sergeant in arms take him out, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. By the way, there was a mention about Saturday Night Live just won't end. No, it hasn't. <laughs> At the end, there's some end credits that say, For Rocco, April 19th, 1979 to October 23rd, 1994, per, per, per. So we assume that that's a 15-year-old cat. We assume he died. (laughs) Buck wouldn't care. (laughs) Must have been an in-joke, but, I mean, there's really nothing on that. No, ma'am, we'll be right back to wrap up this week's review. Be sure to join their Facebook group page for all the podcast news and updates. Be sure to subscribe to them on the Apple Podcast app and please leave a review telling them what you think of the show. To subscribe to their YouTube channel, 
Just go to channels and search up Married with Children podcast. Join their Patreon and support your favorite podcast with a small monthly donation. You can email them at marriedwchildrenpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for checking out this review. So, Chris, how many snack trays are you giving the episode a man for no seasons? <laughs> you know, I like this episode. I, For some reason, I feel like a lot of people don't. I've seen some comments about it before on the podcast, but I like this. I, I don't feel like it's a like a, a classic or a uh, masterpiece or anything, but I laugh at it. It's it's. I feel like the corny, the, you know, the jo- jokes throughout are, are kind of corny, <laughs> and some of them are a little short-sighted and, and don't deliver but overall i like it and you know i am a sports fan so i enjoy seeing uh, the uh, guest appearances by the baseball players and like you said i, I feel like like i think both of you kind of hit on this it, it's a bit of a time capsule in that you had to you know be alive and be living through the the lockout in 1994 otherwise that you wouldn't really fully grasp what's going on if you're just watching it for the first time in 2021 but i do like it i don't think it's a masterpiece but it's a good quality episode and i will give it three and a half snack trays out of five luigi how many snack trays are you gonna give a man for no season well steven i'm gonna go with three snack trays now i have a question is are these three sets of snack trays or is it three (laughs) snack trays like, in other words, is there one on the back for dancing? That's a good question. I, I never really thought about it that way. <laughs> but I guess you better. <laughs> so, you know, I sort of said it at the beginning before we started reviewing this episode. I mean, this is a baseball episode. Now, I remember in the season eight closer, uh, Tyler had used this phrase. This is a sports, 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 sports episode specifically baseball now you know as listeners may know i'm not really a big sports fan but the one game that i do like is baseball and i've been following it you know since i was a kid i'm not really a huge baseball fan like I, if there's nothing else on tv and i'm not doing anything i wouldn't mind watching a ball game and i appreciate the game for what it's played and a lot of these players uh you know, really, and I was watching baseball more intensely in the late 80s, so I recognized many of them. Uh, you know, for example, like Dave Winfield was on the Yankees during the 80s. So, you know, it was nice to see them on screen. Uh, this was just before Mike Piazza joined the Mets. Uh, he was an L.A. Dodgers fan. So uh, I like I like the episode from that perspective, and it's very baseball-centric. Uh, my, my issue with it is that it was – this is very much one of those episodes where – Again, playing it today, I think it gets lost because it is that time capsule. Um, you know, if you look at certain Married with Children episodes, the storylines are timeless. You know, and we talked briefly about the honeymooners at the beginning of this uh, podcast, where you know the no ma'am has almost become like Al's version of the Raccoon Lodge. Mm-hmm. So when you have a storyline where it's between people. You know, and there's dialogue and it's a relationship. Relationships are timeless. This episode, on the other hand, is very much about an event, an event that's happening in 1994, a baseball strike that's specific to 1994, which to most people today is ancient history, as well as the NHL strike 
Yeah, because it's it's mentioned, although like we really don't have any hockey players to come on the episode. So this is one of those episodes where, you know, if it got dropped from Married with Children in terms of reruns, nobody would really miss it. Uh, unless maybe you're a baseball historian, maybe you wanted to see like what people's reactions were. Like that's the way I look at the episode. And that's why to me, it's not as timeless from a dialogue perspective. And that's why I give it uh, three, uh, three snack trays. Okay. I think that's fair. And I will too also give it three snack trays. And I, I agree with you. I think the time, timeliness of it has really faded. And I doubt even a lot of people remember the 94 strike. I doubt even many people were alive during the baseball strike. I mean, Chris, were you, when were you born, Chris? Uh, 1984. So you, yeah, you, I guess you would have remembered it. Yeah. uh, Barely. Yeah. But uh, a lot of new fans don't. And then there's the other thing, the use of the baseball players. Um, Well, the baseball players really weren't used in that great way, except for maybe Piazza. Morgan uh, and Brett Saberhagen. And yeah, because you don't see Bobby Bonilla. You don't see the commissioner. It's only mentioned that uh, Frank Thomas hurls newspapers. You don't see him. And it's like just name dropping. And they didn't have a purpose, like say in an episode like Dances with Wheezy, when Johnny Bench and Joe Namath and uh, Ernie Banks, they all interacted with Al a lot more. Yeah. And had more to do so that's why i would give it three i thought most of the jokes were pretty good Uh, in all honesty i was ready to give it a two i didn't remember it that well i didn't remember it that fondly but when i rewatched it i thought you know it it was funny it did have its funny moments but it just doesn't keep up with the times all right so tune in next week guys for i want my psycho dad part one Season 9, Episode 12, Director Gary Cohen, writers Barry Gold, Michael G. Moy, and Al launches his group No Man in a protest outside a local TV station after Marcy's group Fang gets No Man's favorite TV show, Psycho Dad, canceled. But in a blizzard, no one takes notice. Meanwhile, Bud and Kelly try to convince Al to have them throw a house party for their friends. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to say, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, this was supposed to have been a Chris and Luigi production. Uh, and usually we would have you, like, as a co-host. But uh, this time around, we thought it was very appropriate for you to lead on this one. Because uh, you are the baseball fan. And, you know, I just want to say this. I don't think that, uh, you know, I love Team Australia to death. But I don't think that they could have done... A justice to an <laughs> yeah. episode devoted to baseball. Maybe if it was cricket. Say, but <laughs> ba- and baseball is my favorite sport. Uh, football, baseball, uh, a few other sports I like would include, you know, I kind of like basketball. I'm just not so into it. But baseball's my always been my favorite. It was the sport I was the best at, and I have a lot of fond memories playing it. When I, So that's why I love it. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like, the last episode was Dud Bowl. So, you know, we had two back-to-back episodes. So one focused on football and one focused on baseball. So I think that makes, uh, that, like, rounds it out. But again, um, I don't think... uh, I was on that one. But like I said, I don't think uh, we could do it justice without you. So thank you very much, Stephen, for leading on this one. 
Yeah, man. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. No problem. Anytime. But I think it's time for all little Bundys to go to bed. (laughs) So, uh, Tyler and I started to do something. Uh, Let's see if we can't do it here. When we go out, let's just say, whoa, Bundy. Okay? One, two, three. Whoa, Bundy! Uh, Thanks a lot, guys. So again, so tune in next week. Same Bundy time, same Bundy channel.